Hello and welcome to the Corny and Lind Legal Chatter Podcast, where we discuss different but likely scenarios, provide general legal information, and get to know our lawyers. Please note that this podcast series does not provide or intends to provide legal advice. Hello everyone, my name is Fadza. I am a senior solicitor here at Connie and Lind. I practice predominantly in the areas of family law and wills and estates. Today we'll be talking about family trust structures in the context of family law property settlements. So the way I'll structure this talk is that I'll go through some of the, what I would say, the conventional views with respect to family trust and fam- family law property settlements. I'll then give you some few case examples just to make sure that it's um, easy for everyone to understand from real life examples as to how the court looks at these things and how the court decides whether or not that family trust is essentially the outer ego of one of the spouses and has been used for the purposes of making sure that the assets of the parties are not taken into consideration in the property settlement. And I'll then just close by looking at some of the lessons that we can learn and that you can also learn from this, either going into the property settlement itself if you are involved in one at the moment, and also just what you need to do to make sure that your rights are protected. So the conventional view is that property held in a trust is untouchable and cannot be subject to the division between separating spouses for the purpose of a property law settlement at the end of their relationship. This may be so in the circumstances where the trust is not the alter ego, and alter ego means a second self or substitute of one of the spouses and is not subject to the control or influence of the spouse. The reason why most people put these structures in place in some instances or decide to move assets from one structure into another is because sometimes family discretionary trusts are referred to as being there for asset protection and they're used for as an asset protection mechanism. So what someone would do is that they would set up the trust. The trust would hold property such that the property is not in any of their personal names. It belongs to the trust. Sometimes they use a corporate trustee as the trustee of that trust. And in essence, if you look at it on paper, it will look like the spouse or the partner does not have any decision-making powers or does not hold any assets in that trust. So how how does that how does that relate to family law proceedings the family law act essentially is enabled by the federal circuit and family court has the power to extend its reach in ensuring that the property that should rightly be classified as matrimonial or relationship property is not excluded from the property pool of the assets to be divided between the parties so relying on the amendments in the Family Law Act, the Federal Circuit Court and Family Court now has the power in the exercise of its jurisdiction, being the just and equitable jurisdiction, to resort to different measures to ensure that the property that should rightfully be included in the pool of assets and be part of the division between the parties is not allowed to escape via asset protection structures such as discretionary trust, which has set up, like I said, to achieve the objects of one spouse to the detriment of the other. So the powers that are within the family court 
in in terms of their just and equitable jurisdiction gives it gives the family court in essence the power to go and look at that trust and see whether it can be re- regarded as an outer ego of one of the parties so the perceived protection that is afforded by these structures against claims from spouses has in the recent years been severely eroded and this is just because of the power that the family court now is um, as part of its just and equitable jurisdiction so the the family court is now able to do one of one or more of the following they can consider the trust property to be an asset or a resource of the relationship they can essentially bust based the trust where the trust is found to be an outer ego of one of the parties the family court has the power to declare that trust a sham which is essentially looking at it and saying oh okay the way this thing has been set up it has been set up essentially to make sure that one of the parties to the relationship does not obtain any benefit from the assets of the other party and it's been done to the detriment of their interest the family court has the power to make orders altering any ownership rights of third parties so what is that essentially means is that even the if if the property or the assets of the trust are in essence not in the name of the one of the parties the court has the power to say look this has been set up essentially to deprive one of the parties and we are going to make an order so that the ownership of the of the rights of third parties the third party in this instance being the family trust or it might be a company then alter the ownership of those assets the court also has the power under section 106b of the family law act to set set aside any transactions entered into by parties to transfer or otherwise alienate property to defeat the claim of the other spouse at property settlement so those are the powers that the family court has so even when a party to a relationship is successful in not having a trust considered as their outer ego there is no assurance whatsoever that property held by such a trust would be totally outside the consideration of the family court in a property settlement the family court has wide powers in altering the property rights of the parties to a property settlement in so doing the court must consider the property and financial resources of each of the parties what this means in simple terms is that even where a party to a relationship is a mere beneficiary under a discretionary trust and does not hold property in relation to the trust assets yet that interest and the degree to which the party is likely to benefit in future may be protected from the division between the parties pursuant to an order of the court nonetheless the court is free to have any amount of assets offset against the financial resource we can contrast family discretionary trust with testamentary trust which in most instances sometimes the court might not consider a testamentary trust to be a financial resource if the party in question may not be much better off in the financial outcome of the proceedings than if the trust assets were found to be the property of the party so what what does this let's now look at a few case examples for me to just distill this a little bit more in a manner that might be a little bit better to understand by giving real life examples the case that I'll first allude to is the case in the marriage of Ashton 
In this case, the husband was the appointer of a discretionary inter vivos trust. So inter vivos, it means whilst he's alive. Um, appointer is the person who has the power to hire and fire the trustee. He was also a joint shareholder of the trustee company along with his cousin. The husband was not a beneficiary, but the wife was a beneficiary by virtue of belonging to a class classified as past or present wife of husband. The husband admitted that he was in full control of the assets of the trust. The trial judge had little difficulty in concluding that the trust was the outer ego of the husband and this decision was upheld on appeal. The full court observed that the husband's powers amounted to de facto ownership of the property of the trust. His powers gave him control of the trust, whether as trustee or through a trustee company, which is sometimes referred to as a corporate trustee, which was his creature his creation. He was able to apply all the income and property of the trust for his own benefit. The full court observed that in a family situation such as the one in Ashton, the court was is not bound by formalities designed to obtain advantages and protection for the husband who stands in reality in the position of the owner. He has in fact legal and beneficial ownership of those assets. The full court further opined that the, the court would have been entitled to find that the whole of the trust was in reality the husband's property. So, where a party is able to use their position to make self-entrusted distributions, it would prompt the court to the conclusion that any property held by the entity, which is, sub which is the subject of such control, is rightly the property of the party in question, therefore subject to a property law settlement. Another case that we'll look at is the marriage of Davidson. In this case, the husband was the owner and therefore controlled a trustee company, which was a trustee of a discretionary family trust, of which he was the sole appointer but not a beneficiary. Cash distributions were made from the trust by the husband to the wife and his grandchildren, all of whom were beneficiaries. These cash distributions, in interestingly, were either retained or loaned back to him. The trial judge ordered the husband to pay a sum of 700000 to the wife from the trust. The husband sought a stay of the trial judge's order pending his appeal to the full court. The judge observed that the trustee company was an alter ego of the husband who, under the terms of the trust, cannot be a trustee but did have the right to appoint or remove a trustee. The full court observed that although the trust in this instance was not a sham, it was nonetheless controlled and had always been controlled by the husband and the trust property had always been used by the husband as though it was his sole property. The full court further observed that no no one other than the husband had a real interest in the property on income of the trust except at the will of the husband and therefore he was in fact the owner of the property. The next case that we will look at, which is one of the cases that is most referred to in these scenarios, is the, is the case of Kenon versus Spry. This case was taken all the way to the High Court, and the question for the High Court to decide was to what degree can the assets of a discretionary trust be the property of the parties to a marriage? So, what were the facts of this case? Prior to the marriage, the husband 
had established an intervivos discretional family trust. He was the settler and trustee with the power to vary the terms of the trust. The beneficiaries were himself, his sibling, his and their children, and the spouses for all of them. In 1983, the husband then made the decision to exclude himself as a beneficiary by a deed. The husband contributed substantial assets to the trust during the marriage. When the marriage ran into difficulties in or about 1998, the husband in his capacity as trustee then excluded the wife as a beneficiary by deed. The deed provided that upon the husband's death or resignation as trustee, two of the daughters would become trustees of the trust. The deed also provided that if the husband ceased to be a trustee, no payment could be made out of the trust without the husband's written consent. In 2002, and this was after he had separated from his wife, but before the divorce, the husband then established four separate discretionary trusts, one for each of his daughters. The terms of each trust were that the husband and each respective daughter had the power to appoint over the trust. The husband was the trustee. The husband and each daughter had the power to change the terms of the trust. Upon reaching the age of 32, each daughter could become an additional trustee. The husband was excluded as the beneficiary of the trust. The husband thereafter executed a deed applying all income and capital of the original trust in equal shares to the four trusts for the daughters. In April 2022, the wife made an application to the court to have the deeds making the variations to the trust in 1998 and 2002 set aside under Section 106B of the Family Law Act. This section gives the power to the family court to set aside any transactions that might have been done with the purpose of defeating the rights of a party to a property settlement. In May 2002, Mr. Kinnon, a legal practitioner, became a further trustee along with the husband in respect of each of the trust assets. The trial judge made orders under Section 106B, setting aside both the 1998 and the 2002 deeds. Having set aside the two deeds, his owner then ordered that the husband was entitled to assets with about $5 million and the wife to assets with about 4.7 out of the net matrimonial pool, which was valued at around 9.8 million. It was acknowledged that such a distribution would be impossible, uh, would only be possible only upon reckoning of the assets held in the trust as matrimonial assets and with the use thereof. If not, the husband would not be able to effect a distribution of that magnitude to the wife. I, as you'd have expected, an appeal to the full court was brought and it was dismissed and then the matter proceeded to the High Court. As I said earlier, the question for considering for consideration by the High Court was whether prior to the 1998 deed, which removed the husband as trustee and the wife as beneficiary, either or both of them had any interest in the property held by the trust as would classify such property as matrimonial property and therefore enable division of such property by way of a property settlement. The, the husband submitted that the property of the original trust could not be subject of an order of property settlement between himself and his wife under Section 79 of the Family 
Law Act. The majority of the High Court rejected this submission. Expressing the majority view of the High Court, Friend C.J. reasoned that the combination of the husband's power to appoint trust assets, the legal title that the husband held as trustee, and the wife's right to ensure proper administration of the trust as a beneficiary, qualified the trust assets as a property of the parties to the marriage. So although the husband tried to do an elaborate scheme of appointing and removing himself as beneficiary and settling new trust and setting up trust for his daughters, the court, using the power that it has under its just and equitable distribution, was able to look beyond all of that and come to the conclusion that the assets belonging to the trust essentially belonged to the husband and the wife and were as such available for the property law settlement. The next case that we'll look at is the case of Ward and Ward, um, where the mother, two days before the separation of her son from his wife, amended her will. An equal and absolute division of her estate between her three children, which was provided for originally, was changed such that the, her son's share was held in a discretionary testamentary trust of which the son and his children were beneficiaries. Interestingly, in cross-examination, the son admitted that the purpose of the trust was to put his inheritance out of the wife's reach. The court acknowledged that the property had not vested with the son, and while not his, while not his property, the proper consideration of it would have, would have to be as a resource rather than as property redistributable redistributable to the marriage. There could be some criticism of this decision on the basis that the son's inheritance had to be treated as a contingent resource, given that his mother still had testamentary capacity and would, ha and would have further changes to her testamentary in intentions to his detriment. The last case that we'll look at is Simons versus Simons which was a case where the husband was the beneficiary of a substantial intervivals trust without any control over the trustee. The husband, along with his siblings and mother, had taken regular distributions from the trust, which had been equal. The husband was employed by the trust. The full court noted that the husband had enjoyed significant interest-free loans. The wife, on the other hand, claimed that the husband's interest as an object of the trust should be the property of the parties and sought a third-party order under the Family Law Act on the trustee to transfer assets from the trust so as to effect the property division between the parties. The trustee of the discretionary trust applied for summary dismissal of the wife's claim. The trustee's application was dismissed, the court finding that there was a connection between the assets of the trust and the property of the parties to the marriage, which was sufficient to enable the family law act to be applied. The court proceeded to make the third party orders against the trustee. So based on that very big mouthful, what lessons can we learn from these cases? It is impossible to have a prescription for an ideal trust structure that affords protection to the property of one party from family law settlements. The following lessons could, however, be learned from the decisions considered. First, one spouse being trustee and the other a beneficiary may result in the trust being considered the property of the first spouse. 
Second, one spouse being the appointer of the trust could result in the property of the trust being regarded as property of that spouse. Third, one spouse being appointer and protector of the trust could result in the property being regarded as property of that spouse. Fourth, being a beneficiary under the trust could of its own cause the trust to be property of a spouse party. Finally, the tension in the area of trust in family law property settlement could be summed up as um, essentially the fight between control and protection. So where a party has control of a trust, there is no protection and vice versa. I'll just end by saying family law trust where there's a property settlement involved and there is a, fam a family discretionary trust we would recommend that you contact us so that you get appropriate and accurate legal advice as to whether the assets of that trust could be considered part of your property pool. You might not want to come to us, but certainly get some legal advice from someone before you decide to settle on anything or before you agree whether or not those assets belonging to the trust should be considered as part of your property pool. As you can tell from the cases that we discussed today, the Family Court has extensive powers under its just and equitable jurisdiction to make any orders that it sees fit, especially if there are allegations that the trust has been set up simply for the purposes of making sure that one of the parties is deprived from the assets of the trust. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this helpful. Um, we are happy to answer any questions and assist in any way that we can. Thank you for listening to the Corny and Lind Legal Chatter Podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode of Corny and Lind Legal Chatter. If you require specific legal advice for your situation, contact us directly on 0732520011 or go to www.cornyandlind.com.au forward slash contact.